Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison and thank you for joining me on what is in central Victoria a very lovely sunny if cold day. If I sound a little bit under the weather myself it's because I am just having some very mild side effects from my second Pfizer vaccine. Uh, very happy to be fully vaccinated now and I think this brings us to our first story for today, our COVID update. We are seeing in Australia what we sadly on this show predicted some months ago, a COVID winter. The Morrison government has failed to have Australians fully vaccinated in time to prevent winter outbreaks. We've seen the outbreak in Victoria. We're now seeing the beginnings of an outbreak in New South Wales with two more people diagnosed today and already flagging two more to be reported tomorrow. We're seeing a number of local government areas in New South Wales move to more restrictions imposed by the state government, quite rightly, in my view. Uh, if anything, I imagine that will get more restrictive rather than less in the short term. In Queensland, we've seen a case be reported today as well, and a number of exposure sites listed on the state government website. I urge everyone in New South Wales and Queensland in particular to check the exposure sites, to get tested. Testing numbers in New South Wales yesterday were low, with the health minister saying they were unacceptable. We want to see more testing right across the board. Please, if you have any symptoms at all, do get tested. This, of course, raises a number of questions about the rollout of the vaccination program. And it has been reported today by the Michael West media that the Morrison government was offered 40 million doses of Pfizer vaccine that would have been available in January of this year at some point towards the middle of last year. The discussions were undertaken with Pfizer. Pfizer made the offer. Pfizer were keen to have Australia be an example like Israel of high levels of vaccination rates. And you can imagine why. For a company like Pfizer, Australia is a good ground on which to prove its product. We are an island nation. We had relatively low rates of infection at the time, and we had quite strong controls in place. It would have been a good way to show the whole world how vaccination could happen effectively and have a major impact in the control of the pandemic. The Morrison government turned this down. One expert has been quoted as saying there could only have been commercial and political reasons to do this. Of course, we now know as a country that the Morrison government favoured the AstraZeneca approach. AstraZeneca uh, advice has fluctuated wildly over the course of the pandemic, with different age groups at different times being recommended to take AstraZeneca or not take AstraZeneca, with that advice changing as late as last week. There are many people who have had AstraZeneca who are now being told that perhaps they shouldn't have had it. I would urge everyone to get vaccinated when they can. We do have a situation where Victoria has had to stop taking bookings for the first dose of Pfizer because it does not have enough. And under the current recommendations around AstraZeneca, many Victorians will not be eligible to take it. This is deeply disturbing. What are the political and commercial elements that led to the AstraZeneca choice over Pfizer? Is it just that AstraZeneca is cheaper? Is it that AstraZeneca offered to allow CSL to manufacture the vaccine here in Australia? Partly because uh, CSL capacity really was not able to produce the kind of vaccine that Pfizer does, 
but was able to produce AstraZeneca. Some people have suggested that many members of the government own shares in CSL and that perhaps this motivated part of the decision. I would hope that's not true. I would hope that's not true and I've not seen any evidence to say that that was influential in the decision-making process. CSL was, of course, once a Commonwealth-owned organisation and is now a publicly listed company and many Australians own shares. And of course, there's nothing preventing parliamentarians from owning shares in publicly listed companies. We would hope that supplies of Pfizer will be increased. There was an announcement earlier this week where once again the Morrison government was talking about how many millions of doses it has purchased. We've had so many announcements over time of so many millions of doses being purchased and yet no one in the Commonwealth Government can provide a single source that says how many people have actually been vaccinated. Raf Epstein has been tweeting and retweeting this information today. Samantha Maiden went on Insiders and said that perhaps AstraZeneca has been given a bit of a bad rap and that some of this conflicting advice means that AstraZeneca itself and the vaccine that it provides is getting some bad press. And maybe that's the case. Maybe that's true. It's hard to know. We rely so much on government and expert advice when it comes to medical issues. And of course, we have to. As a layperson, we can't possibly be expected to know the ins and outs of medical equipment, medical vaccines, medical treatments. Uh, and anyone who pretends that they do without years and years of training is actually quite dangerous to themselves and other people. Hopefully, the Morrison government will finally start to get this right. We can't afford, we can't afford another year of blundering when it comes to the vaccine. We have to get this right and we have to get it right now. So my thoughts are with everyone, particularly on the east coast of Australia, who are starting to fear a terrible COVID winter. Please listen to the advice of your state government. Please do follow the restrictions that are in place. We don't want to see the Australia turn into the sort of nightmare that's currently going on in India. We don't want to see all the progress and good work lost as they're starting to see in some parts of the world. Now, I want to move on to superannuation because at the end of the week, the government passed a number of changes to superannuation laws. The Your Future, Your Super bills passed through the Senate with the support of Pauline Hanson and into the lower house. There were some significant changes. The Morrison government wanted to give the minister the power to ban and determine various forms of investment. This was clear overreach and an attempt by the Morrison government to prop up industries where there is no real investor appetite and to punish industry super funds who attempt to do the right thing. And of course, why would they punish industry super funds, you ask? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, it's primarily ideological because at the end of the week, the performance results for the last 10 years for superannuation also came out and nine of the top 10 superannuation funds are industry or public funds, whereas 10 of the 10 worst performing funds are all bank-owned, bank-created retail funds. This clearly shows, clearly shows that the Morrison government's changes remain an ideological obsession rather than a retirement outcome-based decision. So 
the your super your future your superchargers will include some performance test metrics but again many of the worst performing types of funds and products are excluded this is just propping up the worst parts of a system that frankly do not benefit members at the same time they intend to staple members this is the language they use staple members to the first fund that they create now that might on the surface of it sound like a good idea and some form of connecting a person to their fund or their fund to the person may have some merit but if i start as i did my career stacking shelves then the fund that i join at 16 may well be very different to the fund that i need if i was to go into say construction or policing or fire management because the insurance that's available through my fund that comes with my fund will be very different. The injury benefits will be very different. The payout mechanisms will be very different. And yet the government doesn't really seem to care about this. Instead, it's trying to effectively give retail funds who will spend many millions of dollars on advertising a bit of a dolomite style advantage so that when you open your first fund, you're stapled to it and it will follow you forever. And unless you consciously change it, you will be stuck there. You will be stuck there. So please do review your super fund. Please do look at whether you're with an industry super fund or not. And if you're not with an industry super fund, I suggest you look into it because the, the performance tables that exist, the results that people get, do indicate that on average, industry super funds perform better for most people than other forms of funds. And I wanna say this, industry super and superannuation in general was created by the Australian Union Movement. And as people know, the Australian Union Movement sponsors the week on Wednesday. And I'm proud to have that association. I'm proud that the Union Movement has created a retirement policy and a retirement framework that allows working people to retire in dignity. So the days of retiring in poverty are slowly going away as more and more Australians accumulate more and more wealth in their superannuation, allowing them to retire with dignity, allowing them to keep their home in retirement, allowing them to pay for basic necessities and even a few little luxuries. And this is the benefit of being in a union. This is what unionism gives you. You know, together we can create policies and mechanisms and frameworks and systems that improve everyone's life. So I'd urge everyone who is not a member of a union to go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, and join today. Because if you want a better retirement, if you want better policy that allows you to have more prosperity in life, right through from the first day you start working to the day you draw your last breath, then being a member of a union is how you can help make change in the world. So remember, australianunions.org.au forward slash wow. And my thanks again to our sponsors, Australian Unions. Today is also World Refugee Day, and I'd encourage everyone to support the Australian, uh, the, uh, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, uh, and also to check out uh, World Refugee Day hashtag on Twitter and all your social media channels. I want to just wrap up with a bit of analysis about two things. The minimum wage increase, which we touched on briefly on the week on Wednesday, which was announced on Wednesday, and some of this debate around 
having temporary migrant workers on farms. So we saw the minimum wage increase 2.5% on Wednesday. It'll kick in on the 1st of July for many people, but it will be delayed. It will be delayed for retail workers to the 1st of September, and it'll be delayed for restaurant workers and airline workers and many others uh, until the 1st of November. However, and this again, stresses that point around why being part of your union is important. Woolworths and Big W will be passing on the increase, the 2.5% increase from the 1st of July, from the 1st of July, because they are unionised companies. The workers there are in the union. Join your union because you will get paid more money. Join your union because you will end up with a better retirement. Now, many, many companies have not agreed to pass this on. Unsurprisingly, Harvey Norman, not big fans, not friends of the show, are not passing on the minimum wage increase on the 1st of July. They will be delaying their increase to the legal minimum time. If you're a member of a union, you have a capacity to drive up your wages. The minimum wage increase is delivered because unions campaign for it. Unions argue for it. Unions make the case. It's so important to do that. That brings me to migrant workers. Temporary migrant workers are generally less unionised. They are generally more exploitable. They are generally more taken advantage of than other workers. And we saw survey results this week that said 78%, 78% of migrant workers in the agricultural industry were being underpaid. That's more than three quarters of the workers in the agricultural industry. And yet the Morrison government claims that you can't get Australians to do this work. You can't incentivise Australians enough to do this work. I would argue that there are agricultural barons who simply won't pay the minimum rate. And frankly, if you're struggling to find workers, we've all been told for decades that under a market mechanism, the employer should increase the wages to attract more workers. And yet the Morrison government is in the process right now, right now, of trying to facilitate more temporary migrant workers coming to Australia, even during the pandemic, coming to Australia from countries where their minimum wages are significantly lower than our own. This is an example of the Morrison government facilitating downward pressure on wages and essentially allowing mass exploitation in an entire industry. Now, not every farmer does this. Not every person who works or owns a business in agriculture exploits their workers. Of course they don't, because there are still, of course, 22% of migrant workers who are not experiencing underpayment. But when more than three quarters of the workforce are experiencing underpayment, are experiencing wage theft, there is a systemic industry problem. And for the Morrison government, for the federal government of Australia, to attempt to continue to facilitate that exploitation, that broken business model, is frankly a disgrace. So even though this week will be the final week of Parliament sitting before the six-week winter break, and it will be predominantly dominated by the National Party and its internal ructions as who will be leader, whether it will be Michael McCormick, whether Barnaby Joyce makes a comeback, whether it's David Littleproud, I think it's important that we understand that the National Party, the party that's supposed to represent regional Australians, country country Australians, is in the process of facilitating the exploitation of temporary migrant workers over, 
over supporting increasing wages for regional Australians who work in agriculture. So whatever and whoever ends up as leader of the National Party at the end of the week coming, remember that they support the underpayment and the facilitation of exploitation of working people in regional Australia. And for that, they should be condemned. For that, they should be condemned, regardless of whatever internal ructions they may play at. That is the weekend wrap. A bit of a long one today. Lots happened in the time uh, since the week on Wednesday, and there's obviously a lot to come this week. So remember, be kind to yourself and each other. Bye.